It's wonderful to see all of you with us this morning. And again, I just want to say yes, while it is wonderful to see everybody amongst us this morning, I also want to uh, let our guests and visitors know that you are a blessing to us. We are very grateful for your presence this morning. It is our privilege to have you amongst us as we worship this morning. Shoto, Oklahoma. There's a town in Pennsylvania that is not a lot different from Shoto in some ways. Adamstown, Pennsylvania. In Adamstown, Pennsylvania, for example, they have a large contingent of Amish population. Adamstown, Pennsylvania is located in the heart of, uh, or it's located in Lancaster County in the heart of Amish country there, and that's one similarity to Shoto. Also in common with Shoto, Oklahoma, Adamstown, Pennsylvania has a large number of antique and vintage furniture shops. In fact, the area in Adamstown has earned the reputation of being the antiques capital of the world. Oh, I'm sorry, of the United States. Not the world, just the US. It was 33 years ago, in 1989, that a Philadelphia financial analyst was in Adamstown. And he was looking through some old furniture stores and that sort of thing. And he eventually bought an old painting, a painting of a, a rural scene. It wasn't anything spectacular. He bought it basically because he liked the wooden frame that it was in. Cost him four bucks. Rummaging around, four dollars. So he gets it home and later on he's looking at it and it's got this little tear in the canvas and he begins to explore and, and as he does, the old frame fell apart in his hand. And by the way, I checked this out on Snopes. I'd heard the story before, but this is a true account. So just so you all know. And uh, he's looking at it and, and the frame is so old that it falls apart in his hands. And what he found between the picture and the old frame was a folded up piece of paper which turned out to be a rare, original, handwritten copy of none other than the Declaration of Independence itself. It was used as a backing for that picture in that frame. It was one of only 500 original handwritten copies of the Declaration from the very first printing in 1776. There was only 23 similar copies known to exist before this find. Only 23 of these known to left to exist out of the original 500. He has made the 24th. Only two of the 23 that were known to exist prior to his discovery in that old picture frame, only two were privately owned. He had the third one. This rare document just two years later which he bought for $4 in an old wooden frame, not knowing what was in it, sold at Sotheby's on June the 4th, 1991 for $2.42 million. Think about that. 
That's quite an investment. How many of you would invest four bucks for 2.4 million? Right? Everybody would. I don't even want to see your hands because I know y'all would. And it, it looked like this. This copy, sold by Sotheby's, is a crisp, clean, what they call broadside copy. You can see that it's creased along the lines where it had been folded. This particular one, amongst many, was printed by John Dunlap on July the 4th, 1776. And the reason that it was copied was to carry news of America's independence to the citizens of the 13 colonies. Obviously, they couldn't jump onto Google and, you know, just Google Docs and send the thing, right? So they had to have a bunch of handwritten copies in July of 1776 to carry to the colonies. This was one, and again, it is only one of 24 known copies known to still exist, and now only three of which were in private hands. Nine years later, in 2000, June of 2000 to be exact, this resold for an incredible $8.14 million in an online, $8.14 million in an online auction. Similarly, there was another event, smaller scale repetition of this experience, a little later on. Michael Sparks was looking through a thrift store in Nashville, Tennessee, and he came upon this yellowed, shellacked, rolled up document. He learned from the clerk that he could buy it for $2.48, two, 48. So Sparks purchased it, took it home, and after doing some research on it, he learned that it was one of the 200 official copies of the Declaration commissioned by John Quincy Adams in 1820. He sold that, not being quite as, worth quite as much as, as one of the originals from, from 1776, but being one of the copies that John Quincy Adams had commissioned in 1820, this copy sold online for $477,650. In other words, half a million. Bought it for $2.86. Now it was kind of interesting, after this made the news, after this find made the news, the previous owner of this that let the thrift store have it came forward, a man by the name of Stan Caffey. He came forward and he told how he had unwittingly donated this to the thrift store in March of 2006. He had, he had bought this copy from 1820, rolled up. He'd bought it at a yard sale about 10 years earlier and left it hanging in his garage. He's a pipe fitter who uh, worked on bicycles in his spare time as a hobby. When they cleaned out the garage, his wife wound up taking this declaration along with a pile of other basically unwanted stuff, the way a lot of us do when we contribute stuff to thrift stores or, or that sort of thing. She wound up taking this rolled up copy along with an antique table, a shower massage head, and a faucet <laughs> to donate to the thrift store. Thrift store owners kept it, just a rolled up piece of paper until this guy finally bought it for $2.86 and sold it for half a million. This pipe fitter eventually came forward and said, I'm happy for the Sparks guy. If I still had it, it would be hanging here in the garage and I still wouldn't know it was worth all that. It's just life, so I'm not really upset, but you can't help but feel not very smart for doing it. 
as I thought about these two things, as I consider those two stories of common, ordinary, everyday people who had absolutely no idea on this earth of the incredible value of the hidden treasures that were right there under their very noses all along. And that they and their families probably constantly walked by. I mean, how many times do you suppose that old picture on the wall had been walked by in the hall of some farmhouse, right? How many times had, had this guy and his wife walked by this rolled up document that had sat there in his, his bicycle shop, his garage, for 10 years? Every time they come in to get a tool or something, they walked, there's a half a million dollars sitting there and they had no idea. Absolutely no idea. And I thought about that. And I thought, I wonder how many times, take for instance, the family that may have had this, this picture, the, the original, one of the originals from, from 1776. How many times, in maybe an old farmhouse somewhere, that picture sat on the wall. How many times, I wonder, could, could that farmer and his wife, or could that, that person, their family, maybe destitute? Maybe somebody needed an operation, maybe retirement, maybe all of those things, and they had the treasure sitting right there and they didn't know it. And it could have taken care of all of their problems financially. I wonder how many times some of the employees of that little thrift store, after they found out that this rolled up 1820 copy was worth half a million dollars and they'd sold it for $2.86, I wonder how many times they'd dusted around it or moved it or, or put it in another basket, and if they'd only known what it had been worth, they'd have paid $2.86 for it, wouldn't you? Of course you would. How many times could this pipe fitter and bicycle mechanic who had it in his garage maybe have used that, maybe to put his kids through college? Maybe they struggled financially. Put the kids through college, pay doctor's bills, take care of their retirement. What a tragedy. Just, just think about it. What a travesty to have something so incredibly valuable, infinitely valuable, right there under your notes full of hidden treasures that they and their families probably walked by constantly on a daily basis. Wow. And yet, I use that to say this. I wonder how many times that very same thing, walking by priceless treasure that is ignored or neglected or nobody's got a clue, the treasure that is right there under their noses. I wonder how many times in America that happens. In fact, I suggest to you that it does happen. It happens on a tragic and desperate scale every day in America, from, from Adamstown, Pennsylvania, to Shoto Hills, Oklahoma, to everywhere beyond and in between. This scenario repeats itself every day as people in their own homes walk right by their seldom if ever open Bibles as those Bibles just sit there on a bookshelf, an end table, nightstand, tucked away in a drawer. See, in the Bible, we have something that was not written a mere 250 years ago, but something the beginning of which was written some 3,450 years ago. Something that goes far, far, far further back into history and antiquity than the Declaration of Independence. 
We do not have a document that was simply written 250 years ago or a copy of it. But we have a copy of something that was finished some 1920 years ago. So as you can see, what we have in our Bibles is far older and hence more precious as a preserved document than the Declaration of Independence will ever be. The Declaration of Independence was written to set men free from the tyranny of physical earthly oppressors. The Bible was written to set us free from the eternal consequences of sin and death. It is far more valuable. And you know, in the Bible, we have something that is neither creased nor stained or has any hold in it or has in any way deteriorated or been diminished. But God's word is perfectly preserved for us to this day, perfectly preserved. One of the reasons that we know this, amongst others, is because of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Back in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, copies of the original letters that we have in our Bibles today that were written in the first couple of centuries and hidden around caves in the Dead Sea. And, and when they discovered these 60, 70 years ago, and they took them out, they compared them to the copies of the Bible that we have, and they were, they were pretty much flawlessly, perfectly, word for word. We have God's word preserved for us. But even that is not where its main value comes from, just because it's old and been preserved. The main value of the Bible, the, the main priceless value of the Bible, that which makes it so much more priceless and powerful and precious than the Declaration of Independence, than even John Dunlap's $8.14 million copy of the Declaration of Independence is this. While John Dunlop wrote down word for word the words of the founding fathers of this country, those who wrote down the Bible wrote down word for word the words of God the Father and creator of the entire universe in heaven. And that is what makes the Bible so much more priceless. We would discover this from the pages of the Bible itself. For example, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, which is a fancy word for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice it says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Not just some of it, not just most of it, not just 99.999% of it. All scripture, that is the Bible, is given by inspiration of God. Now, some translations will say it's given, uh, or it's God-breathed or breathed out by God. It's, it's the same Greek term as is used, given by inspiration of God. God breathed it out, some versions will say. This is what makes the Bible so priceless right here. Not just its age, not just that it's been preserved, but that it's been perfectly preserved, and it's from God the Father in heaven. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, the Apostle Peter, who walked with Jesus, had this to write. He says, knowing this first, then no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. You know, some people today will say, well, that's just your interpretation. Peter says, no. 
Every word in the Bible is given by God. Don't interpret, leave it the way it is. Look at what it says. Read it the way it is. No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came about by the will of man. What you find in your Bibles is not some guy's idea that he dreamt up. That's not where the Bible came from. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Some translations will say, Men spoke as they were driven along. That is the idea. It's the idea of a ship being driven along before a storm. As a matter of fact, that same Greek word for moved is used in Acts 27 in verse 17 where it talks about the ship that's driven through the waves. As we said earlier, God's word is perfect. There are no holes in it. There are no flaws. There are no smudges. There are no contradictions. When we see something that appears to be a contradiction, we need to keep digging, because if we dig far enough and study hard enough, we'll find that it does not contradict itself. God's word is perfect. God's word says God's word is perfect. Psalm 19, 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's not perfect. You can't improve on it. It's perfect. It doesn't have any flaws in it. Wrinkles, holes, smudges. The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. You can depend on it to the grave and beyond, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Christians, we have so much, we have everything. If we can't rejoice, nobody can. The commandment of the Lord is pure. And again, that's the same type of idea. It's perfect, flawless, completely pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The Bible says there is such a thing as absolute truth. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God's word, so precious, so priceless, so incredibly powerful. God's word is forever firmly written in heaven. God's word is preserved in heaven. Scripture tells us this. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And what that word fixed means is the same idea as like concrete when it's set up. It's, it's firm, it's there, it's locked down, it's not going to change. It means what it means, it means what it was originally written to mean. It says what it says. It is fixed forever in the heavens. doesn't mean it was broken, he had to fix it. It means it's firmly locked in in the heavens. That's why our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would say when he came in Matthew 4 and verse 4, man's not to live by bread alone, but by every word proceeds from the mouth of God. Did you know that it is within the Bible that we find everything, every single little thing, all of it, that God wants for you and I to know in order to be pleasing to him and live forever with him. Did you know that? The Bible says that too. Everything we will ever need to know, both about him and how to live for and with him, throughout all eternity. The Bible says in 2 Peter 1, 2 through 4, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. Where do you get the knowledge of God? From the Word of God. And of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power, now remember this was written in the first century before Peter died, by the Apostle Peter. His divine power has given, past tense, 
From the first century on, prior to Peter's death, we had everything we needed in the Bible. Has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. By the way, this isn't underlined in your Bible. I did that on purpose, but you can underline it if you want. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. God's word is priceless because of what it can do for us. God has given us everything we need to know through what he's revealed about himself, and it's in that that we have these great and precious promises. So as you can see, even at this point of the lesson, the Bible is a priceless treasure. It's just like that frame on the wall of that rolled-up document so many people walk right by on a daily basis in their own homes. And it's just, it, it is full of priceless values. But like those who walk by those million-dollar things, we walk by this without checking into the depths of what it can do for us. Just like those that had those things hanging on their wall or in their garage all that money they could have had to use for their own benefit. They never, they never knew it was there and took advantage of it. And it would be so pitiful, so awful for us to, to miss the treasure that is worth so much more. It's right here in the Word of God. As Peter calls them, these are the words of eternal life. Peter answered Jesus before Jesus was crucified and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is the only words that will get you to heaven. When you come to your last breath, the only thing that will get you to heaven is Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But you don't learn about Jesus unless you take Jesus for his word right here in the scriptures. These are the words of eternal life. For all of these reasons and more, that the Bible is so valuable to us, but yet so neglected. We don't just walk by it in our homes. We How often do we thumb past it in our house? We all get a free Bible app, right? Some of us may have them, but how often in checking the news of the day or the sports of the day or current events or calendars do we just thumb right by that hidden treasure, just like walking by that picture on the wall? We don't delve in and see the priceless worth that we can take advantage of in God's Word. Because I'll tell you, it's worth a lot more than 8.14 mil. Just how valuable is the don't tell me you paid $9.95 for yours. That's not what I'm talking about. Just how valuable are these words of God? How valuable? As the Apostle Peter alluded to, they are priceless. The Bible, the words that God has for us that can give us eternal life, are priceless. Let me show you a couple of places in the Scripture tell us that, because the Bible is not only its own best interpreter, it is its own best appraiser. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm, longest chapter in the entire Bible. It was written by David, a man after God's own heart, as the scriptures call it. And here's the thing, Psalm 119 is devoted entirely, completely, all of it, to trying to help us to understand the absolutely priceless nature and the infinite power and worth of God's Word. That's what it's devoted to. Longest chapter in the Bible. Devoted to the very thing we're talking about today. In fact, of the 176 verses in Psalm 119, 
172 of them, all but four, make some allusion to the priceless nature of God's word. That's pretty, 172 verses out of 176. In some way or another, trying to tell us of the infinite value of God's word, including verses 72 and 127, which say respectively, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. It's worth more than millions of dollars. And David knew a few things about gold and silver, by the way. He also wrote there in verse 127 of Psalm 119, I love your commandments more than gold. Yes, and fine gold. His son, David's son, King Solomon, one of the wisest and richest men and kings to have ever lived, wrote about God's wisdom and its priceless nature in Proverbs chapter 8, verses 10, 11, and 19. He said, Receive my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than rubies, and all things one may desire cannot be compared with her. My fruit is better than gold, yes, than fine gold, and my revenue than choice silver. King Solomon knew a few things about riches, too. Of all of these verses, as well as others that we could point out about the infinitely priceless worth of the Word of God, all the, the golden jewels of nuggets of wisdom that are embedded and inscribed on every page of God's Word tells us the worth of the Bible. The Bible, which so many have in their home, without a clue, as to the infinite riches it contains and how it could help and enhance their lives. For those of you who are here with your FFA groups, you have one of these visitors folders. If there's any of you that don't, and I believe all of you do, but if you don't, we can surely get you one. And certainly any of our other visitors, family members uh, of FFA, anybody that wants any more of these, I have more on my desk, but I want to take just a moment and, and talk to you about its contents. As you open this visitor's packet up, as we talk about the Bible being the truth and its priceless worth, right down here in the corner, and certainly open yours up if you have one, right down here in the corner, you have a website you can access on your smartphone. It's called thetruthabout.net. And if you ever had questions about any of these things, there's biblical answers right here. You can access it anytime. Also, within the pages of your little folder, you're going to find a Bible bookmark. On that Bible bookmark, you will notice two websites, shadowhillcfc.org and godswordistruth.org. All of the lessons that are preached here at Shoto are posted on that God's Word is Truth. If you go to the Shadow Hills website, it'll simply take you to the God's Word is Truth website. All of our sermons are posted there in audio. You can also access them on Facebook, audio and video. But the reason I, I say this is because if you hear something in this morning's lesson that challenges you, and you think, wow, I, I need to hear that again. I don't remember. I don't remember the verse. You can go and listen to it again. You can find it. Every word I said. Yeah, I was going to say, we are recording, right? <laughs> sure, made sure, of course, I said that. Anyway, then next to that in your folder, you will find this house to house, heart to heart. The church here sends these out once every two months. Good stuff. Um, you'll also find on the other side of your folder, this quick for teens reference. It's not a commentary. It doesn't tell you what men think. What it tells you 
is if you want to know about something, here are the scripture references to look it up in. And you can look it up in your own Bible, because it isn't important what I say. I'll tell you right up front. It's not important what I say. The only thing that really matters to your salvation is what God says. That's why I'm not giving you a bunch of references to tell you what I think, because what I think don't matter. But on this, you have what God says and where to look in those references. And then finally, you have two little flyers, two little folders. Back on that left-hand side, what to expect when you visit the Church of Christ, and what does the church have to offer me? And both of these are about the biblical aspect of the church here. So I hope you'll take those home, look them over, maybe share them with your parents. And if you're interested, again, in hearing anything I've said this morning, again, there's links in here to do that. There's other links that will take you to Bible verses and references on any topic you may. Hey, if you want to sift through the golden nuggets of wisdom that are in your Bible on any topic that interests you in your life, there's references in here to help you find the verses. Because let's face it, the Bible is a big book. And try to find one little piece is difficult. If you look at those references you have in your visitor's folder, you'll know where to access them. <coughs> See, the reason the Bible is so priceless, so perfect, so incredibly, the value can't be measured. We can't measure it in millions of dollars, billions of dollars, or bazillions of dollars. Because it's the word of God. And so, one of the reasons that it is so important is because the Bible, right here, is God's perfect and flawless spiritual seed. The word of God is like seed. Just as Jesus said in Luke 8 and verse 11, the seed is the word of God. So what do I mean by that? Simply this. We all know that if we want to plant tomatoes, that those tomato plants are not going to yield cucumbers. Pretty simple, right? We know that if we plant whatever, corn, that we're not going to grow grapes. It doesn't work that way. The seed that is planted brings forth after its own kind because that's something that God established very, very early on in Genesis. In the Genesis account, Genesis chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, verse 21 and verses 24 through 25, God talks about when he made different things, how they would bring forth after their own kind. Humans that have babies do not have baby hippos. Okay, it doesn't work that way. We, we realize that humans are going to have human babies. Hippos are going to have hippo babies. Everything is going to bring forth after its own kind, just like seeds planted in the ground. What that has to do with this is simply this. God's word is seed. When you plant just the Bible, you're going to produce only what the Bible said you'd get. Make sense to everybody? When you want to know about what God wants in a certain circumstance or situation, you get in here, you find out what he said, you do it the way God said it, and that seed is going to germinate and bring forth the result God said it would. It's going to bring forth after its own kind. We've all heard you reap what you sow, right? We reap, we gather that which we have planted. 
If we plant according to God's word, according to God's blueprint, we're going to get what God said we would get. It's going to bring forth either good or bad, depending on what God's word says about it. For example, or moving on a little bit and taking that to another level. It is in the pages of the Bible that we find God's one preserved, flawless seed or plan for spiritual DNA blueprint, if you will, which God gave for his church. You find the blueprint, you find the seed there. So whenever you say, hey, I want to just be the church in the Bible. I just want to be the church that I see in the Bible. I want to be the church the apostles went to. I want to be the church that Jesus established. If you take what the Bible says and go only by what the Bible says and use it as seed, you will produce that kind of church. Simple as that. That's what it means for it to be seed. And, you know, some of you here today may have gone to, to other churches. You may never have gone to a church, but one of the things that I found that people think are a little bit strange about us is, is we sing without instruments. Not because we can't afford a piano. Just saying. I've heard that. Well, you guys can't even afford a piano. No, 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 no. What are we trying to do? What's the point? Why do we just sing? Well, the Bible tells us to sing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The, the church that we see in the Bible, they all sang to one another to encourage one another. Each member sang. We, we see this in, in eight different passages. But they just sang. So we just sing. We just try to. Let the seed germinate and produce the same kind of worship in every facet as it did in the first century. It, it's really no more complicated than that. Same thing when it comes to name. As, as we look through the Bible and we plant the seed, we just want to be called what the church in the Bible is called. We just want to do what the church in the Bible did. We just want to want to be that church. And, and so anytime you take that seed of the Bible, that's what we're trying to do. Anytime you take that seed of the Bible and you plant it and, and you go only by what it says. It's got to reproduce that which is in it. The same is true when it comes to our salvation as well. You know, God gave his son Jesus on the cross for our sins. God had that plan in place before the foundation of the world. It tells us that in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. talks more about it in chapter 3, verses 8 and following down through to 11. God's church, God's plan, God's son, God's blood, if you will, as it talks about in Acts 20 and verse 28, because Jesus was God. It's the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. It's all about God. It's all about Christ. And so he provided the atoning sacrifice. He paid the price. And so he gets to say, or has the authority to say, how we are to accept that grace and mercy. If I buy something and I pay the price for it and I decide that I'm going to give it to you, I get to set the terms and conditions of giving it to you. Hey, you want to break the house? You want to come over and get it? I get to decide because I bought it and I paid for it. Well, God, in having bought the church through the blood of his son, gets to say how we accept the benefits or the grace of it. And I'm going to ask you, if you have a Bible, and I know I put them all up here to make it easy for us, but I really want you to see this in your own Bible, so if you have one, please take it out. Turn to me to Acts 2. 
I want you to see especially, and I hope you've marked down those other verses, and again, you can go back and watch this on, on the church, uh, the Shuttle Hills Church live stream on Facebook if you want. If you missed a verse or two and you want to check it out again, don't take my word for anything. But I really want you to turn to this one and see it in your own Bibles. Only God has the right and the authority to set the ground rules for how we are to accept his grace. After Jesus went back to heaven, he spent 40 days with his disciples explaining to them about the kingdom of God and told them to go back to Jerusalem and wait until power on high came upon them. And we see that happen in Acts chapter 2. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up and he preaches the first gospel sermon after Christ's resurrection. He preaches how Jesus is the Christ, how Jesus fulfilled the scriptures, how God's plan had been carried out, how Jesus had shed his blood and he was the Messiah. Then I want you to watch what happens. In Acts chapter 2, Peter concludes his sermon, just as I'm going to conclude this one shortly. He concluded his sermon in Acts 2 and verse 36 and said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. There were people in the crowd that day who helped crucify him. Now when they heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Man and brethren, what do we do? They knew they had sinned. They knew they were not right with God. They knew they needed to do something. They didn't know what they needed to do, but they knew they needed to do something to get right. Again, this is God's blueprint, one that we will see repeated throughout the book of Acts. If we were to read and study it, but we'll only use this first one. And Peter said to them, Repent. That simply means turn your life around. Turn to God. Repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Some verses say for the forgiveness of sins. Some translations. But that's what he, wanted, he told them to do. This was God's word. Repent and let you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or forgiveness of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter continues, The promise is to you and your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God was called. It's promise for everybody. For you, for your kids, the next generation, it's for everybody for all time, is the implication. And with many other words, verse 40, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Now, something interesting there is we read just the word of God, just the way it's written. They were already cut to the heart by the message. They already believed. They already believed the message Peter had preached, that Jesus was the Lord, he was the Christ. They had faith in that message. They were cut to the heart, verse 37, but they still weren't saved, despite the fact that they believed. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, again, verse 40, saying, Be saved, because they weren't. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. They took action based on their faith. They did what God said to do in order to be saved, and from that point, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, teaching, and fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and in prayer. You see, after they believed enough to do what God said to do to have their sins washed away, they continued in the apostles' doctrine. They kept, they kept going forward in what the Bible, of course, the New Testament wasn't written at this time, but in the Word of God that they had at their disposal, they continued in it. They knew what it was worth. Then fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. 
So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness. These Christians were glad. They were glad because they had listened to what God had said through Peter in order to be saved. They not only believed it, but they really believed it because they believed it enough to do it. And they trusted that God would keep his end of the deal. They trusted that God would keep his end of the bargain. If they repented and were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, they trusted God that they were forgiven. And so they were happy. They were together. They were eating with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The Lord added to the church daily. Church is simply the saved people. It's not the building. It's those people that have been washed in the blood, those people who have been saved by the blood of Christ, who have accepted God's grace and mercy on his terms. That's what God's word says. And so, the thought I have for you as we conclude this morning is simply this. If you're here this morning and you've looked at the blueprint, you've looked at the seed, and you want to just do it God's way, and you see what God says, if you sin, how you need to be made right with him and accept his gift of grace and mercy? Or if you say, wait a minute, that can't be right. That cannot be right. Let's sit down and study God's word together. There are plenty of people here who would study with you. We'd love for that to continue. Because it's through continually getting into this that we continually sift out its treasures. That we continually see what God said and we, we use that, that infinitely valuable word of God to benefit our lives. We, we, we use this and it, and it sets us free. And just like that old picture between the backing and the picture that's on the front, there's a whole lot in between the two. It's worth a lot more than eight mil. If you'd like to study further, tonight we're going to be back here at six. We'll be here Wednesday at seven. Be here next Sunday as well. I can have a private Bible study. There's people here that you know that will study privately with you. It's not about anything other than let's just see what God says. Let's look through the documents. As we continually study and discover and dig out and take advantage of all of the priceless golden nuggets of wisdom which God has put in the Bible, he's told us they're there. We don't have to wonder. We know they're there. If there's any way we can be of assistance to you this morning, we can help you to study or learn, or you have questions, please see one of us. We can't be, none of us can be wrong in God's eyes if we're doing what God said is right. That's all we want to do. Hopefully it's what each and every one of us wants to do. If you have a need this morning, please let us know if you would publicly as we stand and sing or privately afterward. We are here to serve God by serving you. Please come right now.